a monk enrolled in a monastery he took a vow of silence that permitted him only to speak two words per year and only at the year-end review. At the end of the first year, he was asked what he would like to say, and he responded, bed hard. At the end of the next year of silence, he said, food cold. Following his third year of service, the monk said, I quit. The, the head monk responded, well, I'm not surprised. Ever since you came here, all you've done is complain. <laughs> While we can't choose what happens in life, we can choose our attitude toward what happens. I want to give credit for much of this message to author Steve Lawson. Much of the content today is resourced from his book on Job, When All Hell Breaks Loose. Job teaches us to, to face your challenges with the assurance that they are temporary and, and your reward is eternal. There's hope at the end of your rope. So we're in the, the third week of a, a survey of this 42-chapter book, and we're trying to hit some of the, the key highlights. And today's topic is there's hope at the end of your rope. And the first part of the message is let go of despair. The past two weeks, we've examined the, the life of Job, his suffering, his hardship, his loss. And Job finds himself hanging on by a thread. His children's lives, his wife's support have been taken, and now even his friends are a major discouragement. Job is barely hanging on. His hope is all but gone, and he cries out for help from above but there's no answer, only silence. And we come to this second round of dialogues between Job and his friends. And Job is at the end of his rope. In his desperation, he comes to a turning point. He discovers there's still hope. He comes to a, a breakthrough in his faith. And he's encouraged to hang in there with God. Let me set the scene for you. Round one is complete, and this second round of conversations between Job and his friend, friends begin. And while Job had been answering his friends, they were busy reloading, putting more ammo in their guns. And instead of listening to Job, they've just been waiting for him to stop talking so they can fire away. They're not comforting him. They're not sympathizing with him like true friends. In his first speech in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz, one of the friends, spoke politely and indirectly about Job's sin. But now, however, Eliphaz speaks more pointedly to Job. Uh, he says, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Now, Eliphaz accuses Job of, of being a lot of 
hot air, who speaks irreverently about God. You talk about ir irrational. Uh, Eliphaz is the, the, the poster boy for the, the Pharisees, even before the Pharisees were ever invented. He completely ignores the possibility that Job could be telling the truth about his innocence, which he was. And there was no sympathy for Job, just a vicious attack. Chapter 16, verse 1, Job replied, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that keeps you to keep on arguing? I, I also could speak like you if, if you were in my place. I, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, and, but my mouth would encourage you. I would comfort from my lips and bring relief. Job is saying, with friends like these, who needs enemies? If I were in your shoes, I wouldn't judge you or attack you. I would lift you and support you as a true friend. Job covered himself with sackcloth, this outer symbol of mourning, and and then he describes himself in Job 16, verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. He's face down, prostrate in the dust. My face is red from weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence. And my prayer is pure. At a breaking point, Job pours out his heart to God in prayer, and he claims to be blameless of any wrongdoing deserving of such judgment. Continues in verse 18, Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And then dropping down to verse 22, he says, Only a few years will pass before I take the path of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me, and my eyes must dwell on their hostility. He's saying this injustice is so painful, it has taken years off of my life. And inner number two, friend number two, Bildad, suggests that this is because, Job, you've lost your wealth, you've lost your children, you've lost your health. Obviously, you are being judged by God. In fact, he says, Job, you don't even know God. All this calamity couldn't happen to a true believer, Bildad contended. Then in chapter 19, Job replied, How long will you torment me and, and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. Guys, this is really 
none of your business. This is between God and me. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliations against me, then know that God has wronged me and, and drawn this net around me. He says, this just doesn't feel fair. And Job's response in, in the midst of this satanic attack, because that was the source we learned in the first two chapters of the book, uh, is to become a major turning point for, for Job's faith. And I, I want to have us focus on three or four verses that are found in Job's second response to Bildad. In chapter 19, these, these words contain an outstanding, extraordinary statement of deep faith in God. Indeed, one of the greatest statements of faith in all the Bible. And beginning in verse 25, Job reaches a place where he's going to put this all in God's hands. Doesn't make sense. It's not fair. I did deserve, didn't deserve this. But I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Here is the hope when you're at the end of your rope. Here's the hope that Job found that enabled him to endure and persevere and hang in there. And it's your hope and my hope as well. Job has a steady conviction. He speaks emphatically with great certainty. Here's his hope. I know that my Redeemer lives. Harry Houdini was the world's greatest escape artist, known for his incredible feats of escape. And he would venture into a new city and immediately head to the local police department. And there he would make sure the press was waiting. And he challenged the local forces to, to see if they could contain him from escaping from their jail. Walter Gibson, Houdini's biographer, told the story of how Houdini almost lost that challenge once. He was handcuffed. They searched him for any keys. He was led into a jail cell in which he was to escape. Left alone, but Houdini had no problem getting the cuffs off. But as he began working on the jail cell door, he realized he might be in over his head. And despite everything he tried, all of his tricks of the trade, he could not pick the lock in the usual fashion. And so... He was about to give up where the biographer said that in frustration, Houdini leaned against the gate and the door swung open. The guards had forgotten to lock it. And I think there are many times in this life that our problems, our difficulties, our situations seem inescapable to us. They often frustrate us to the point of, of giving up. And when we feel the frustration, we need to lean against the door and hold on to hope. It's been said, you can live for weeks without food, for days without water, for minutes 
without oxygen, but you can't live a minute without hope. On Friday, I attended the funeral of a a friend's son. This 22-year-old young man had incorrectly concluded that he had no hope, and he took his own life. My heart breaks for his family. It's so crucial that we help the hurting hold on to hope. Tomorrow, July 16th, there's a a, a new national network of, of a suicide prevention hotline that goes into operation. In the past, that has existed since 2008, but because of legislation that was passed about a year and a half ago, there's now this shortcut method of of three digits. And I want you to write this on your bulletin. If you're not a note taker, be a note taker for just a moment. Write these three numbers down. It it may save you or someone else who who needs it. 988. 988. And similar to the 911 number for medical emergencies, callers only have to remember these three digits The FCC has determined that makes it easier for Americans in crisis to get the the help they need, and that patches you in directly to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Since 2008, suicide has ranked as the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And here in, in the state of Indiana, it also ranks overall as the 10th leading cause of of death in our state. And so we need to be alert and sensitive to those who are hurting and and try to help them through their their struggles. This this series, the last few weeks, has bubbled up a lot of emotion for you, and and several of you have, have spoken with me and talked about your struggles with anxiety or your thoughts of suicide or your attempts to end your life. And as a church family, we want to help you overcome those reactions. And we know that they are directives that are sent from the enemy. And the enemy comes to kill. And we want to help you get the support and assistance you need to the process and overcome those challenges. And that brings me to the second part of the message. Hold on to hope. A redeemer was a vindicator of one unjustly wronged, a defender of the oppressed, a champion of the suffering, an advocate for one unjustly accused. A redeemer would come and stand beside you as your champion and advocate. He would be on your team and pull you through to see that you were done right. Uh, Redeemer was the cavalry riding in to your rescue. A redeemer was the vindicator of one unjustly wronged. This is the turning point for Job. He realizes that God has been on his side the whole time and is with him beside him all the way, no matter who opposes him. He sees that eventually 
God will make right every wrong that has been suffered in this life. And God will do the same for you and for me. God will right every wrong that we suffer unjustly. And that is the hope that Job sees. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Hope deals with the future. At the end of time, it is looking ahead. God is going to stand on the earth. And this verse foreshadows, it points ahead to the second coming of Christ. Job says, I can go through this trial and suffering because I know that God is my avenger and advocate. And at the end of the age, God will have the final say about my life. He will have the final word. He will stand on this earth and defend me of all the false accusations that have been made against me. And that day, Job says, God is going to make every wrong right. And you may be going through all kinds of suffering and trials. God will make it right. Who knows how much you have suffered unjustly. You may have suffered abuse, mistreatment, other injustice, and and God is going to make that right one day. You've suffered unjustly. But listen, at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, He's going to make it all right. Maybe you've been singled out at work for being a Christian and trying to stand for integrity and and morality. Whatever the reason that promotion has escaped you and gone to someone else, God is going to make it right at the end of the age. And you will see God. Though there will be millions of people surrounding the throne you will gaze intently upon your Redeemer who in that day will reward you for all the suffering that you have endured unjustly. Job thought he knew God before. He had this deep relationship. He was the most spiritual man on the planet, God said. But now after going through this suffering, Job had a deeper insight and a a totally new perspective into God's character and his relationship with God. His relationship with God went from black and white into vibrant, living color, high def. Henry Morrison was a a great missionary who, with his wife beside him, served on the mission field in, in Africa for over 40 years. They toiled and served faithfully in obscurity. And at the end of his stay, it came time for him to return to the States. And Henry and his wife were on a steamer coming back to America. And they were wondering, would anyone even remember us? We've been gone so long. Will will anyone care? Will, Will anyone notice? And as their steamer pulled into New York Harbor, Henry Morrison went to the edge of the ship to see whether anyone he knew had come to welcome him home from serving the Lord after 40 years in Africa. As he looked at the harbor, he was astounded at what he saw. 
Thousands of people had turned out. The Marine band was playing Hail to the Chief. There were signs and, and banners and billboards. And Henry's heart just leaped out of his chest. He said, look, they haven't forgotten us. And as the ship pulled into the harbor, Henry prepared to deboard. And he looked back. And there came the entourage escorting Teddy Roosevelt off the ship. Now, unknown to Henry Morrison and his wife, on board the same steamer was the president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. He had gone to Africa for a big game hunting safari and was returning to the States. And only then did Morrison realize that all of this fanfare was not for him, but it was for the president. As Teddy Roosevelt got off the steamer, a, a ticker tape parade followed, and Henry and his wife were left standing in the confetti and debris. And Henry was so downcast. He went to their hotel room. He, he sat on the edge of his bed. He said, sweetheart, it, it just doesn't seem right. We've served the Lord so faithfully for these 40 years. We've served in total anonymity. We've been faithful to God. And Teddy Roosevelt goes to Africa for two weeks and shoots some elephants that they set up to run in front of him, and the whole world turns out to applaud him. You know, it just doesn't seem right that we would come home and not have that kind of reward and applause that we really deserve. Henry's wife looked at him and she reminded Henry, we're not home yet. We're not home. Our reward, the applause of heaven, will be waiting for us when we get home too. Steve Lawson described a, a couple of years ago, Ann and I were in Dallas seeing her parents, Ann's mom, was there for a cancer checkup, having made remarkable progress. James and Andrew, our twin sons, were just little babies at the time. We were driving back from Dallas late at night after seeing her folks, and we used to drive an old diesel station wagon that you could hear coming for miles. He said that diesel engine clanked louder than a dozen loose golf balls in a clothes dryer. We were coming back on the interstate somewhere between Texarkana and Little Rock, and the boys were asleep. Ann was half asleep. He said, she never fully goes to sleep when I'm driving. And we were out in the middle of nowhere on Interstate 30. It was so dark at night that you couldn't see two feet in front of you without the headlights. As we were driving along, all of a sudden, I felt a loss of power. I thought maybe the engine had just missed, and... I looked in the rearview mirror, and there were clouds of smoke billowing out of the back of the car. And he said, I, I'm hopeless when it comes to working on cars. And I said, sweetheart, look. And Ann turned and saw that trail of smoke behind us as the car literally began to coast. Cruising up a hill, I began to think, what are we going to do? It's almost midnight. We have a diesel car. Nobody works on diesels. Do I pull over to the side and, and wait for help, or do I walk miles and try to find my, my next stop? If I leave my family stranded on the road, will I come back and, and find that someone has taken them? Or maybe I'll just 
uh, take Ann and the boys with me, but the boys aren't walking yet. I don't know how far Ann and I can go carrying both of the kids, and or maybe we'll just sit in the car and wait for someone to come along. He said, that might be waiting until the, the second coming before someone would help us. What, what do we do? He said, as we coasted up to the ridge, I said, sweetheart, I'm going to have to pull over. We, we can't go any farther. and I don't know what we're going to do. And then he said, I looked and I saw a sight. I, I still can't believe what I saw. Just over the ridge, there was a large sign with one word on it, hope. And there was an arrow pointing to the exit ramp. I said, sweetheart, look, there's hope. You know, Job thought he knew God before, but now after going through this suffering, he had a deeper insight and a a totally new perspective into God. And at this point, Lawson was barely rolling forward over that ridge, and the car began to pick up steam. He could still hear the knocking of the metal against metal in the engine, and he coasted to the edge of the exit ramp, and there were two signs that were turned on. One was a Chevrolet dealership. It was the only one within 100 miles that worked on diesel cars, and right across the highway was a second lighted sign for the Holiday Inn. Those were the only lights on in town, and he said, sweetheart, there's hope. It was Hope Arkansas was the sign. When you're at the end of your rope, there's still hope. No matter how impossible the situation seems, no matter how dark the night, there's always hope. You may be spewing smoke out of the exhaust pipe of your life and have lost the power to go on. You may barely be coasting forward, but I want you to know there is hope. Are you at the end of your rope? Remember, there's hope. He will pull you through. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, I I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right now, I want to ask you to, to reach for the strand of rope that you were given when you came in to the auditorium today. This is a tangible symbol that God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forsaken you. He can redeem your pain. And when you feel as though you are at the end of your rope, would you remember there is hope at the end of your rope? I want you to keep this rope And take it with you as a reminder of that promise, of that truth. Put it somewhere where you'll need to see it this week. And draw strength from God to hang on. Talk to one of us if you need some support, if you need some help. And we'll we'll get you connected with the support and direction you need. I'm not sure what your particular trial might be. Maybe something severe serious, suffocating to you. I don't know what suffering you're going through personally and will have to endure during your time on earth, but there will be an end to it. The point of today's message is face your challenges with the assurance that they are temporary, but your reward is eternal.
On that final day, God will reward us for enduring, for, for hanging tough during our suffering. You see, Jesus had to become a man in order to become our redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was the closest relative, and that's why Jesus became flesh and blood so that he might become our brother, the closest to us, our champion, our advocate to defend us when we are wronged. We seldom hear the rest of the story. We, we all know about the heartaches that, that Job suffered, but Job thought he knew God before, and now he had this, this new perspective, and he said, after asking all these questions of God, why, why, why? God said, I, I have some questions for you. Can you shout an order to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of rain? Water? No. Can you send lightning bolts on their way? No. Uh, do they come to you and say, here we are. Where are we to go today? After several of those questions, Job was left on the beach, drenched and wide-eyed, and knowing he could never argue with the ocean again. He lifts up his hand and cries, enough. He's gotten the point. What is the point? God owes no one anything, no reason, no explanation, nothing. If he gave them, we often wouldn't understand them, which makes the conclusion of the book all the more moving. Even though God owed Job nothing, he gave him everything. He gave him new health, a new business, new family, and most of all, a new insight into understanding his heavenly father. God is God. He knows what he is doing. And when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Would you pray with me? Dear God, when we're in the, the blender going through suffering, it's, it's hard to see our way. And sometimes we, we question you and, and why you don't intervene. Lord, I, I just pray that we will learn from Job today to put our perfect faith and trust in you, relying on you to be our, our redeemer and see us through. Lord, we look forward to ultimate justice someday when you right the, the wrongs of this world. I pray for those who are weary and tired of going on, who are ready to let go of their rope. May today's study be a reminder to hang on and to seek you and your people. We pray in, in the name of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer.